Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oakey. Apologies for the hiatus since our March episode. The end of the spring semester was a bit rougher than expected, and I've just now finished traveling for conference season. But now I am back with the June episode, which features my conversation with Anne Michelle Carpenter of St. Mary's College of California. In this episode, we talk about how reading patristic theology led her to study Hanser's von Balthasar, the challenge and promise of teaching metaphysics to undergraduates, and the way she engages poetry in her work. We also talk a lot about Star Wars, including Anne's January term course on Star Wars and religion. We will be back in July with our next episode. And if you have people you'd like to see as guests on the podcast, let me know on Twitter. I'm at Stephen Oakey. Thanks, as always, for listening. Today on the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking with Anne Michelle Carpenter, who is an assistant professor of theology at St. Mary's College of California. And thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I like to start with the question of how did you come to study theology? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I, I started off in theology for, for all the wrong reasons. I, uh, I wanted to be right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's that's the wrong and, reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and I wanted to sort of prove the the church right, mm-hmm. and I basically dove into patristic sources and learned that theology was this whole other thing. That mystery is what animates theology, and not being right all the time. And I actually liked that better than, mm-hmm. than being right. And so I, I kept going. I kept having questions. And um, people let me keep asking questions. And Balthazar says really sarcastically at one point, like, everyone wants to be a, patrolo- a patrologist in the old word for patristics. Mm-hmm. But all my questions were were contemporary. They weren't sort of about the past. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in systematics asking contemporary questions. So that's kind of the story, how I got in. Was there an inciting incident that made you like, I, I need to be right about this? I like. Did you have like an early nemesis or like, <laughs> like a bad youth group or like I, I got... Like a Thanksgiving uh, argument with the family? Like, what well, was there something in particular, uh, or was it like a just like yeah. a disposition? Or well, I think it's partly dispositional. Like, the the church was super stable for me mm-hmm. in like an otherwise like challenging sort of place, especially as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So it was part of it. But also, my my mother's family, the Sicilian Chicagoans, mm. they like to be really sarcastic about the church. <laughs> And that just threw me, uh, <laughs> and so I would, I would fight them. Sorry, all of my all of my visits with them would be debates. So I guess that's where I got it from. <laughs> There's a certain amount of holding your own, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So very very adolescent in its way. Yeah. Uh, the the contemporary questions that you came to ask, did those arise out of studying patristics? Did they arise sort of in spite of studying patristics? Yeah, they kind of came came from the fathers sort of originally. They ask a lot of questions about how various beliefs connect to other ones. 
which I was really curious about because we, uh, the catechism is a summary and a list, mm-hmm. but how do I make sense of these things together? And that's what I was much more interested in. So Irenaeus has this lovely synthesis of the faith, sort of locates it right at baptism as a miniature creed. And that made me really excited. Mm. And I wanted to be able to ask questions with him instead of sort of asking about his place and time. Mm -hmm. Although I really liked learning about that too. Good, good. I I had a follow-up and I, I just lost it. <laughs> so maybe, it it may or may not come back to me. I know one of the things that you have written about, and I I, I mean I, I see you tweet a lot about it, which is you know how I first encountered you. Yes, is is poetry. Yeah, and I I think I remember you saying recently that poetry is something that you fight with or that you you were fighting with. Yeah, and I'm curious about how that interest in poetry. Both as, I mean, not just studying it, but you also write poetry. I do. How that ties into or, or integrates with your theological pursuits. Yeah. So basically, grade school and high school taught me to hate poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, really hated it a lot. I thought it was emotivism. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just kind of sentimentality without any brains which is my least favorite thing Mm. in fact when i was when i was writing my dissertation which deals with poetry i would get teased how's the how's the poetry going is it dramatic (laughs) enough and i (laughs) hate that and so that's what i thought poetry was which which means i really didn't understand what poetry was and i think like a lot of people i didn't know how to get into it uh, it was this total mystery for me, and that that annoyed me. And there was one poem I still really, really liked, Francis Thompson's Hand of Heaven. Mm-hmm. I found it in my grandmother's bookshelf hmm. when I was like nine or ten. And I just liked the way it sounded. I, I'm very sure that as a nine-year-old, I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. But it was very lovely. And so a friend of mine... He's actually at BC, Gregorio Montejo, figured out that I had this one poem I liked. And he knew from the way I wrote that I had a proclivity for symbol. I just, I just wouldn't admit it. <laughs> so, so we started with, with Thompson and Thompson's religious poems. And then he gave me more and more poems. And I just really opened up to them. He had to manipulate me at first, so religious poems is something I was familiar with. I had sure. no patience for, like, John Donne's love poetry mm-hmm. or Francis Thompson's poems about the sun and stuff. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of fought in my whole way through until until I realized poetry was a, was a kind of world that was opening up for me, that I could be creative with and um, really own as as mine mm-hmm. especially because it wasn't being assigned to me I just mm-hmm. was discovering it and so I dove in and kept reading and kind of dropped the pretense that I didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. could admit that I really really liked this thing 
poetry. It was, it was and, no longer an ironic reading of poetry. Right. It's no longer, no longer an ironic yeah, reading of poetry. I was, I really openly loved it. And so there was kind of one last hurdle to, to getting me to sort of like fully embrace that was the dissertation. I, at first I didn't want to write about poetry and metaphysics because I, I thought that would make me strange. And I, and I just really wanted to be just like a normal theologian. <laughs> uh, so my directors, I had two, had to convince me. And they were very convinced because I'm, I'm not the most talented poet in the world, but you don't often find poets slash theologians. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. It kind of took two halves of me, the very, very logical half and the artistic half and forced me to pull them together and to make some kind of sense of them. So I'm kind of always circling back to how does the freedom of symbols, the creative playing with language that happens in poetry coincide with the ways theology is also forced to be creative with language has to invent new words or pull new concepts together to, to make meaning of faith. So how do you then take the, the further step to the, the link to metaphysics? Because, I mean, even, well, even when you first identify those as, you know, the, so the two halves coming together in the research, I can see why you were concerned about being a weird theologian. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. creative, it's, it's a creative insight. It's, it's certainly not one I, I would have ever had. Yeah, so Balthazar, Hansers von Balthazar, was sort of my my key into that. So he he borrows from Heidegger and kind of makes makes a Thomist Heidegger and says, "Being is expressive. Being expresses itself. Be truth then is an unveiling of being." And so. Language also expresses itself. Language is also kind of unveiling. Mm-hmm. And so language and metaphysics resonate. They're not the same thing. And they, they, they shouldn't be collapsed into the same thing. But they have expressivity. And so the, the, the thing that makes other people nervous about me the people who are into poetry, for example, is that I want a kind of metaphysical seriousness in theological work. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I want to support truth claims or the possibility of truth claims, not necessarily a specific truth claim. And the thing that makes metaphysicians nervous about me is I, is I don't think metaphysics is adequate for every theological question. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of between those two. <laughs> the sort of classic interdisciplinary trap. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you in your in your study of poetry and in your writing of poetry, do you have a preference uh, between poetry that is more structured, more you know, that has specific meters, that has specific, you know, patterns, or yeah. poetry that is sort of a free and sort of I guess, it seems, I guess, less structured or... 
Right, a kind of a more modern turn. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a temptation to make an idol of rhyme and meter mm-hmm. when even modern poetry has structure. It's different structure, mm-hmm. but it, it has structure and patterns, and there's a serious shaping that happens in modern poetry, too. So I don't necessarily have a preference. When I write, it's generally looser, but that's because I don't have a great ear for meter. Mm. So I, I kind of have to, like, bang on the piano keys to <laughs> hear the sounds. So I, I, I approximate meter and rhyme, but often not strictly. I admire people who can. That's its own skill. But I also think it's kind of classicist. It's a kind of idolatry of the, of the past yeah. for everybody to want to be G.M. Hopkins. Like, yeah. G.M. Hopkins is amazing. And he's dead. He's the only. Uh, so Catholic poetry should be something, something new. Yeah, he was new. Yeah, I remember when I took Latin in college, and I took the you know the last class I took was the Latin poetry class, and I I had no ear for meter at all. Oh, it's so hard too because they do length of syllable. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. it was. It was not my it was not my best Latin class, <laughs> I think. Suffice to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you read any Ovid? I really like Ovid. We, I think we, I don't think we got to Ovid in that class. Okay. Um, at least not that I remember. I honestly, I don't it's even so- remember what poetry we read in that class. Like <laughs> my, I I remember in the prior classes like getting through you know like Catullus and and that sort of thing. Okay. But yeah, when we got to poetry, it was just. It wasn't it wasn't drudgery it wasn't unpleasant it was just i have a good sense for you know like the balance of there are things that i am good at and then mm-hmm. there are things that i could get good at and then there are things that i i just will not get good at and that was definitely yeah. in that last category for sure um, yeah. <laughs> so that was i feel yeah. that way about uh, math yeah. yeah yeah i was a math major in college and Math is great, yeah, actually. I learned it, recently. <laughs> <laughs> but I it was it was kind of an interesting thing too, because in math, like I, I had always been very naturally gifted at math and I'd been encouraged mm-hmm. in math by my teachers. They were like, Oh, you're good at this, you should keep doing it. So I just kept doing it. And it ended up being a sort of funny split between the first category of things I'm just really good at and then mm-hmm. things I could not figure out. Because I hit a I hit I describe it as hitting a wall in college math where like mm-hmm. just nothing made sense and i had never learned the like discipline of struggling with it um, sure so then i mean i was a terrible math tutor because <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't know how to explain it to you if you didn't get it whereas i was a great writing tutor because i was a terrible writer um, and it, yeah yeah and it, I see. it was I see so hard to figure out so yeah. <laughs> i i know from twitter you've been reading a lot of is it pegui is that how it's pronounced pegui mm-hmm. Guy. No, no, it's Peggy. Peggy. Okay, so you've been reading a lot of Peggy. What? What's? What's the story there? I having never read Peggy. Like, where? Where's the starting point? Where's the? Yeah. Well, so Baltazar writes about Peggy in a couple places, but sort of theodrama. He transitions from 
the church fathers to modern questions of soteriology with with this French poet. Mm-hmm. It's his whole, whole pivot point. <laughs> like, oh, of course, yeah, we all do that, right? So I read Portal of the Mystery of Hope is the Balthazar's main source there. And uh, I really liked it. And I understood that one of the things Balthazar really likes is Peggy has this... I'm, I'm putting the emphasis on the long syllable. I always do that. But um, he does these weird things with the nature of time and mm. history. And that's what Balthazar's interested in. And that's what I've been interested in in my research lately. Mm-hmm. Well, it's how does... We make a lot of bold claims about how tradition works. Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's very weird. So what are the conditions, metaphysical conditions, that would have to be the case for tradition to actually work? Mm. And so for me, those questions are never just metaphysical. They're, I have to ask them through art, too. And so uh, Peggy is my my guy for that so mm-hmm. i've been reading a lot of him he's also really really interesting to me because he he's alive in this whole era in french catholicism where you have a lot of really really interesting thinkers uh jacques maritain maurice blondel and they're all living in a france that's essentially post-catholic hmm. but still has a lot of very catholic elements in it and so they're trying to make sense of life mm-hmm. in light of that. And out here in California, there's a very uh, kind of resonant situation. Hmm. A lot of place names, San Francisco, speak to a very deeply Catholic past and a deeply Catholic present, depending on through where you look, that's also very post-Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm... Right now, I'm trying to make sense of that for myself, too. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you see that reflected in your experience in higher education, too? Like, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm thinking in particular about my, my like, the students that I have. I mean, like, I'm at a Catholic mm-hmm. university. I think maybe, at least nominally, about half of my students are Catholic. Yeah. But that, you know, nominally has a, is carrying a lot of weight there uh, in that mm-hmm. comment. And, yeah, the, the sort of... Not not just the, the the sort of cognitive you know dimension of it, but even the cultural dimension of it is very yeah. strange. Uh, yeah. So and different. And theology hasn't. So you and I are are broadly trained in certain questions, mm-hmm. even certain contemporary questions, and those aren't necessarily the questions of my students. And so I'm faced with a really interesting decision and there are, I think there's more than one valid way to face it, but do I introduce them to the questions of the past and sort of train them in them? Do I start where they are and sort of work backwards? Dispositionally, especially because I love the fathers, I'm much more on the side of, I'm gonna teach you some questions and then, and then you can, uh, and then you can ask your own. But first, you'll have practice mm-hmm. asking questions. So, yeah. I, have, I have colleagues who do it the opposite way. Sure. So I mean, 
works. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's always good for students to have options. But I had I had this really nice moment this semester that I, in my, my six years at my institution, I'd never had where, you know, I mean, every semester, you know, there's a day where we do the Aryan controversy and Nicaea and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I realized I've, you know, I've always been sort of, it's not the question that I have the most interest in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has often come across. And so I've probably not modeled the best behavior all the time. And so I, I shifted tack this time and they were reading, you know, you know, letters from Arius and letters from Alexander of Alexandria. And there was this kind of amazing moment when it clicked for them, this question about, you know, God as creator of time, you know, yeah. like, like, like God is creator of space. Like, this, like this is so easy for them and so much in the background for them. But the, the time thing, like mm-hmm. you can see all these students just sort of having, you know, these strange looks in their eyes. And it's like, okay, like, that I can work with this. Like, this is good. This is an old question that can be new in a different way and, and all of that. So I one thing I wonder, and this is maybe part of my struggle, but in, in a way I think you might be the best person to ask about this. In, in what ways have you had success with students in terms of talking about metaphysics and bringing <laughs> me- metaphysics into the classroom? Because yeah. I think my students, insofar as, like, if if they knew what that word meant at all coming in, which is almost never the case, oh, sure. they, de- yeah. they definitely have, you know, at best the sort of, you know, the angels head of a pin, you know, kind of none of this matters sense of things. So, yeah, well, well, first the story when, uh, when I first came to California from the Midwest, I'm a child of the Midwest. <laughs> I walked in, I was in Berkeley, which has a million used bookstores because mm-hmm. that's where the university is. Um, so I walked into a used bookstore and I saw this section called Metaphysics. And I was like, oh, this is great. Metaphysics. <laughs> I've never seen this in a bookstore. And I walk over and it's all new age metaphysics <laughs> stuff. So if they have a sense of what metaphysics means, my students might have that sense. Huh. So disappointed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I don't, we do do metaphysics, not to a greatly high level, sort of enough to start to track with, say, why it's such a big deal that Gregory of Nazianzus says God has to create even the beginning mm-hmm. uh, for there to be a beginning. And so we have to talk about being or goodness. We talk about the analogy of being. And so they practice it enough. I might not call it metaphysics, but we practice the steps of it mm-hmm. enough to be able to see why Thomas's first question about the Trinity is, okay, but can God have a procession? Because that seems to imply God can change mm-hmm. or has parts and that's sort of meant that's metaphysical nonsense as mm-hmm. far as or classical metaphysics is concerned so yeah at most at most they'll get the very basics of of being and potency and all that and i've worked one-on-one with students who really like thomas aquinas or something and so i will really go into metaphysics but i think in terms of discovering theology, it's much more about 
how each question is shaped rather mm-hmm. than giving them the specific discipline of metaphysics. Sure. I think they would maybe riot if I <laughs> tried that. Like, first, let's talk about the four causes. Uh, no. <laughs> I think the, I think the one reason my students love the four causes thing is it, it's probably one of the moments when I can be like the clearest about certain things. Oh, it's so clear. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I then like I, I've had this happen a couple times where I'll like I'll pick on a student and I'll I'll be like you know so John is gonna bake cookies for us for next class and so like what is you know what is the formal cause of his cookies and all that. And I, I would say like one out of three times a student will actually bring cookies as a result of it. So there's <laughs> there's a positive like there's a positive association with it too. Right. <laughs> no self teach cookies. Yeah, yeah. It, teach it, about cookies. It works sometimes. <laughs> it does well. That's kind of, that's kind of the danger of metaphysics, though, is you think you've got it, mm-hmm. which is not never at all the point mm-hmm. of metaphysics. Yeah, but it makes you think. Oh. I can move these words around, which means, which means I must get it. <laughs> no, you don't know what being is. Nobody knows what being is. Only God knows what being is. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is. It's probably good to do some more training in humility. Most, <laughs> mostly for me. <laughs> same, same. So a couple of the questions I had, I guess maybe more sensitive questions. One... Uh, you've mentioned Balthazar uh, several times. I know he's very significant for you. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask sort of how did Balthazar come to be significant for you? Was he was he someone you encountered in undergrad? Was this, you know, like, I mean, what was it? And then beyond that encounter, what was it that drew you to sort of, you know, this is the theologian I want to wrestle with for, you know, at least the next several years and, and I'm sure longer. Right. Yeah. So I actually first ran into Balthazar through the fathers because mm. he wrote several texts mm-hmm. on them. So I think I was reading about Maximus the Confessor in one of my undergraduate classes, and that was the first thing I read from Balthazar. Hmm. I didn't know who this guy was and didn't really care because I was way more into Maximus. <laughs> but I really liked his book, on Maximus the Confessor, and it taught me a lot. And... By the end of that same class, we looked at four different contemporary soteriologies, one of which was Balthazar's, and it was it was all the metaphor of the stage, and I I mm. got it because I because I was secretly good at art, even though I hated art. <laughs> I, I really, really, really uh, sort of took to this honestly very strange method of his i thought Mm -hmm. it it made a lot of sense to me Mm -hmm. and so sometimes uh, sometimes i'll kind of stereotype myself this way i he sounded like the fathers to me Mm -hmm. and because he quoted them so much and so i got into him and at some level he was teaching me how to be creative and subversive with a tradition that i really liked and I really needed to figure that out. Mm-hmm. That's why I think I stayed with him. Was sort of how creative he ends up being. Yeah. Do you do you feel like at this stage you're, I guess, sort of like replacing him with other figures, or is he still very much in the background for you, or or the foreground yeah. for you, or? Yeah, he. I mean, he's sort of my my intellectual father, so he'll never not be there. Mm-hmm. We're, 
So what's interesting career-wise is that is I keep getting asked to write about Balthazar. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say no. <laughs> Even though I, I really, really want to write about this French poet, and I really want to write about Maurice Blondeau, uh, so getting into that late 19th century French thought. So so I keep using Balthazar's interests to, to leapfrog into other things, because I don't think... He didn't only read himself. And so... <laughs> If I if I want to do theology like he did, I I should read other things. Mm-hmm. And so I've really enjoyed getting to know all kinds of different thinkers, uh, including Bernard Lonergan, sort of the opposite of a French poet, but also yeah. really interesting. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that drew you to Lonergan? Uh, my friends. I was at Marquette, okay. and. Um, Oh, well, if I really loved my friends, and so I wanted to learn what they were doing, and um, that's kind of how it got got started for me, because I had a bunch of Lonergan friends. I, I think... really didn't like Lonergan at first, actually, hmm. and because I, I didn't, <laughs> I kept asking my friend Jeremy Blackwood, "Where is Jesus?" <laughs> keep telling me he's a theologian, but. <laughs> We're talking about insight, and I don't understand. Um, and I basically had to like figure out that God really is everywhere in His thought, quite seriously, to sort of get on board with Lonergan. But he's he's really helpful because he's very very logical, and I'm usually reading people who enjoy circular thought more than they mm-hmm. more than they like discursive logic. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think. I think Lonergan would love your answer about <laughs> reading Lonergan because you loved your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very Lonergan answer. Um, yeah, I was always, I was at BC, so I was always a little okay. bit sort of... Okay, you also. I was, well, I, I describe myself as sort of Lonergan adjacent. <laughs> That's good, I like that. Like I, because I, I mean, I TA'd for Fred Lawrence and he was on my exams and on my dissertation and mm-hmm. I wrote on David Tracy, and who was a student of Lonergan and so... He's always sort of there. Yeah. But I, and I, so I, I, you know, I, I did the, you know, I did the work with method and all that sort of stuff. I just mm-hmm. have not yet, I've, I've not yet been able to dive into insight and it's, yeah, it's terrifying and large and a phone book of a book. And yeah, I know, very... I know there's a section where he's like, you know, and 17thly and all that. And it kind of, <laughs> yeah. 21stly. Yeah. So. And, and yeah. part of me thinks that way, and part of me, I guess, is frightened by that. Yeah. Even yesterday, my, my students have their their finals are starting today. And someone asked me, I think it was yesterday, you know, I gave, I gave them all the short answer questions in advance so they can prepare them, and then I just kind of randomly pick which ones they get. Someone yeah. asked me something, and they're like, How, what, what is this? And I was like, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of, you know, three ways you could answer this question. And I started going, and then I got to five before I cut myself off. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's like, good. Yeah, and I was like, you know, the first three, those are definitely stronger. The last two are kind of a little tenuous. But so, yeah, I can I can see. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm cool with Lonergan and Jason. That's, that's all right. <laughs> I, so this would horrify the true believers, but. I've never read Insight in order. 
Mm-hmm. And that's actually really helped me. Yeah. I read in, in the order of questions I have. I remember someone telling me that if whenever I do get to read it, like it's like read chapter seven first or like like just uh, yeah like skip yeah. the fr- I, I i have it written down somewhere it was like, a lot of math analogies in the first yeah. few chapters yeah <laughs> they're like just skip all of that and then this is the part where it's making sense and it's like but i but i love math so i think i'll be okay <laughs> but yeah yeah i'll get to it at some point mm-hmm. but yeah sure. i feel I, I mean i feel similarly to you and how you feel about balthazar with how i feel about tracy whereby yeah. like I, I get asked a lot about Tracy stuff. I'm still writing Tracy stuff. I like mm-hmm. I, I still have things I'm doing, but I I'm ready I'm ready to stop writing about Tracy mm-hmm. and write more sort of with Tracy, I guess. I like that distinction. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. Um I have I have a couple more things where it's like this is a question I need to answer about him, but then it's like I I've been I've been working on I'm I'm applying for sabbatical for of a, a future semester which feels forever away um but even that project is sort of it starts out with tracy but by the end he's sort of faded i think from the project so i don't know we'll yeah. see how it goes that's kind of the it's a fun and annoying professional crisis how do i <laughs> how do i be who i am as a scholar but also kind of move in a direction mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and sort of chart my own path I also uh, we we both share a love of Star Wars. Yes, and you had an experience or an opportunity of which I am profoundly jealous, which was to teach a class on yep. religion in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you might talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so St. Mary's has what's called Jan term, and it's it's a it's a semester in a month. You just take the <laughs> one class. Four times a week. It's a, it's a sprint, but it's uh, a chance to do what you would normally do in a in a classroom. And so I was asked to do Jan term, and I, well, I was told to do a philosophy class because then because then no one would take it. But <laughs> I want <laughs> uh, I wanted to be excited about what I would spend four days a week talking about. Mm -hmm. So Star Wars excites me enough that way. And so Star Wars and theology, students are very dubious of the theology half at first. Um, But we kind of learn how to to ask questions about the world Star Wars assumes, Mm -hmm. which is it has a lot of theological assumptions, actually. And so we sort of start off there treating the the world of Star Wars, and then we start to compare it to actual theological thinkers. Probably my most successful book has been Keiji Nishitani's On Buddhism. Hmm. They they get to learn about actual Buddhism from an actual Buddhist Mm -hmm. and uh, contrast it to Star Wars' pseudo-Buddhism. And we read... So Kierkegaard talks about how to be an authentic self, basically, which is another really important question in the Star Wars universe. So basically, we have a, we watch clips and we have a lot of fun thinking about <laughs> Star Wars, <laughs> but it's this it's this uh, it's it's kind of like giving them a spoonful of sugar, you know, mm-hmm. to help 
them think religiously, to ask serious questions about religion. I always end the semester, the Jan term, a little bit jealous of Star Wars, a little bit jealous and resentful of Star Wars. Because <laughs> uh, they know so much about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And one student, day one, was like, I think the theology between the original trilogy and the prequels changes. And I was just like, if you thought half this hard about religion ever, my life in the classroom would be so much easier. <laughs> so I end up like weirdly jealous of Star Wars by the end. It's like take a break. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, have you have yeah. you got have you gotten to teach it more than once? Yes. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so jealous. Yes. It's it's been fun. Yeah. Been fun. Has it has it shaped your appreciation for Star Wars? Yeah, I it lets me appreciate how multi-generational it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one in the classroom ever remembers The Empire Strikes Back being a surprise because mm-hmm. we're all too young. But they grew up with the prequels. And I, I let them run most of the conversation. I don't lecture pretty much at all. Mm-hmm. And so I get to learn a lot about students through their passion. Mm-hmm. So it makes me even though I end up jealous of Star Wars, it actually makes me really grateful that there's this common thing that they can love and master and use it to express their own opinions about the world, which I think Star Wars is pretty good at Mm because it's basically myth, and myth is very flexible. Yeah. Make it yours. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of different myths thrown together. (laughs) It is. It's it's a total mess. But that's kind of its its strength, though. Get to they get to take it and make it theirs. Yeah. Do you do you get anyone who takes it who is not already very into Star Wars? I've had a couple do that, and they they've they've said to me they've had to go do homework by like watching the prequels or something, because <laughs> uh, pretty much everyone else is very into Star Wars. <laughs> Like they'll they will cite the TV shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so I learned a lot of facts about Star Wars actually. Yeah, I I tell people I I I'm maybe too into Star Wars, but I I <laughs> and I, I like Star Trek a lot. I've watched a lot of Star Trek, but I think it's I good really stuff. I think I you know I've gone back and forth on this for years, and I I think Star Wars actually captures my heart more so than Star Trek does. But I I tell people a lot because. I remember, I mean, I was in, I think I was graduating from high school when the first of the prequels came out. Okay. And I don't remember hating it the way people did. Right. But I remember sort of by the end of the prequels, you know, feeling overall a bit let down, uh, even though I think Revenge of the Sith is the best of those three. But I I have told people since who are, you know, in roughly that same Oregon Trail age generation that I'm in. (laughs) That's right. um, that, you know, if if you have if you have the time and the willingness, like watching the Clone Wars is just it's it's such a fascinating show. It's really good, actually. Yeah, it makes what could have been the elegant tragedy of the prequels into an actual elegant tragedy. Yeah, I mean the way it, the way it like fleshes out Anakin Skywalker's character so much mm-hmm. uh, in a way that those movies didn't. And it also, I really appreciate the way, especially in later seasons, it deals with the sort of the grimness of that world. Mm-hmm. 
because you have you know you have these actual clones that become real characters to you and that you as with any fiction that you start to develop attachments to and so yeah i'm I'm a big fan i i mean there's yeah. you know there's there's dumb episodes but overall i guess oh, it's, sure. yeah. it's it's pretty but solid I, work <laughs> i mean yeah it's it's good stuff i think R- roger ebert calls star wars he used to call star wars a kind of space opera mm-hmm. and i think that's that's pretty accurate yeah. as this grandiosity set in space it's, mm-hmm. it's not sci-fi it's not about technology no pretty much a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was really it was really um a sort of nostalgic delight to go see the Rogue One and uh, and which I, I love as a movie on a lot of levels. But, I really like, yeah. But one of the things I love so much about it was they they kept the technology consistent to the original trilogy. So like this whole this whole sequence about getting like a, a giant like tape out of a machine, you know, mm-hmm. like was so great and 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 this is one of the contrasts with Star Trek is like when they re, when they do the new Star Treks like the technology is so amazing now and and they just they they accept it and don't make any changes and there's a part of me that's a little let down by that right yeah yeah so. Star Wars has a kind of built-in nostalgia factor mm-hmm. cause it's already about long ago mm-hmm. but it's been around so long that it's it's got layers yeah and yeah. I mean that's true. They don't have to explain why the future is less impressive than you know the present, the way Star Trek would if it was right, still yeah. like the '60s. So, I cool. love the original series though. Really? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so funny. There's a whole Mirror Universe episode where yeah. the only difference about Spock is he has a the goatee. goatee. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. There's a. Yeah, it's a real. It's a real hit and miss series. Uh, it, took, <laughs> it took my wife and I, we watched, because we, we watched all of that and we just finished Next Generation like a couple months ago. And it, it took us a long time to finish season three of the original series because it's just a mess. It is. Um, but yeah, there are some great episodes. And I, I you know, you know, Facebook shows those like, you know, two years ago memory type things mm-hmm. they had it showed me one the other day where i i had commented something like you know like kirk's three responses to a situation are it's like beat somebody up talk someone <laughs> to death like literally to death uh, right, right. Or, or like laugh it off and it's like yep <laughs> that was pretty much the go-to <laughs> and i still there's this there's this musical cue they would do in the original series for when there was danger when they were going into the commercial mm-hmm. And then I would, when we were watching Next Generation, I would do that musical cue for the show, <laughs> which, I don't know, added to the delight of watching it. That's awesome. Yeah. But, and it is also interesting on a nostalgia factor because people always talk about how great Next Generation is. And for the most part, it is. But Next Generation has some awful episodes. Just so oh, like, yeah? Yeah. Like, we were watching through it, and one of the one of the rules of thumbs I, thumb I developed was if a main character in this episode is a kid, it's going to be a bad episode. And, <laughs> and it pretty much always, not always, but close to always was the case. So, yeah, I don't know. Have you watched Next Generation? I've watched bits and pieces of it. If I remember rightly, my brother's a fan. I'd say it's worth it. You know, if you're already into the universe, it's it's worth it. Okay. There are some, like, there are some really fantastic episodes. It's also interesting to watch now that it's been over for 25 years to see 
you know, its its own way of sort of navigating social issues in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, comparably to the original series, but also, you know, what were the issues then and how did they deal with it? Sure. And it's it's pretty striking in a lot of ways. So I give it a high recommend, you know. Okay. So, so the thing I need to do to to update my nerd card, I think, first is, is actually watch Battlestar Galactica. I've oh, never, yeah. Yeah, I've never watched it. Oh, man. So I'm not a real nerd. Uh, I, I, need to, I need to fix this. I want to give you something because I, I was a huge Battlestar fan. And when I was in my doctoral program, very early on, I was thinking about doing my dissertation on Balthazar. And I, someone, I, th- I think, wisely talked me out of it, mm-hmm. in part because just of the sheer volume of reading I would have to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah. I had this idea for a paper that I never executed called Balthazar Galactica. <laughs> um, <I love> ready. <laughs> and there, throughout Battlestar, there's this great theological anthropology question about what it means to be human and you know like what is the deal with the cylons and and all the mm-hmm. and and as and, it, and as the show you know unfolds its own mythology this question gets richer and richer and richer and so when you when you punch that ticket on your nerd card like yeah. if you want to write that paper or book or or you know video series or whatever i i wholly grant it to you so <laughs> i will i will never get to it <laughs> I know, I, I know that now. So, so as we wrap up, I like to close with some less serious questions. Okay. Although people sometimes tell me that these are harder than the other questions I ask. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. So I have five. Number one, are you more of a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee. Okay. Are you no. like, like every day? Do you have like a ritual? Yeah, every day. I'm not... A lot of my Marquette friends are super into coffee and all the various espresso things. I, I'm not, but but I like holding a cup of coffee and drinking from it. It's yeah. nice. Fair enough. Number two, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Oh, that's good. I don't know if this is favorite or least favorite, but every time I hear on Eagle's Wings, I start crying because it's always at funerals. Okay. I've heard it. Yeah. It's not hate, really. It's just more like funeral. It's it's still, it's a strong emotional reaction, though. Yeah. (laughs) It fits. (laughs) Number three, of whom or of what would you be the patron saint? Oh, that's that's a really good one. I don't know. Can I say martial arts? Because that would be mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, you totally okay. can. All right. Uh, I don't think. Yeah. What What is your martial art of choice? Krav Maga. Oh wow! How long yeah. have you been doing that? Three years. I haven't been I haven't been doing it the past couple of years, but I'm planning to go back. Yeah. Yeah. That always sounded like one of the, I guess, most useful. Of yeah, martial it's arts. pretty. It's more martial than art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Fair. All right, number four. I hope this question makes sense because it's a new one. If you lived in the Star Wars universe, which era would you want to live in? Oh, nice. I really like the kind of Rogue One era, actually. I loved the movie, mm-hmm. but uh, a disintegrated Republic 
with freedom fighter it sounds like if i'm gonna be in space it sounds like the place i'd want to be i wouldn't like the prequels world because that's kind of the baroque excess of <laughs> republic just before it falls it's sort of rome right before it ends yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather be Gregory the Great, like, all right, society fell apart, let's do this. Yeah, time to fix it. All right. Yeah. And then last question, this is my my Lonergan question. If you were a functional specialty, which functional specialty would you be and why? That's good. I'll say doctrines because they're the semi-ironic reason I went into theology. (laughs) Um, that I still have questions about. <laughs> yeah, and I like the way I like the way Lonergan puts doctrines because he grasps that they're about mystery. Mm-hmm. So. Nice, yeah. that's a great answer. Thanks. Right. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's lovely talking to you. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by me, Stephen Oki. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you're looking for your new summer jam, check them out on Spotify. You can support the podcast by going over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast or by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you want to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, dailytheology.org, our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo.